On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family through their Facebook page, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to the Missing Moore Murray podcast. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you? I'm doing very well. How are you today? I'm doing great. Great. We have a, uh, a great episode, conversation with a good friend of ours, Jordan Bonaparte from North of the Border. Isn't it funny how long it's been since we last spoke to him on the air? I feel like we talk to him all the time, and I was really surprised that it's been so long since we last had him on. Yeah, we had him on Crawl Space, and we talked to him through text and, and Twitter and stuff like that, probably more than I guess we do on the air. So it's good to have him back. We did have him on once a while back in episode 39 called Covering the Case with uh, the Nighttime Podcast. And, of course, that is Jordan's podcast, the Nighttime Podcast, and he's out of Nova Scotia. Halifax. Halifax. Beautiful country up there in Halifax. So it was really a fascinating, interesting conversation that we had with Jordan. We always have good conversations with him. He's always able to take a step back and perceive things in a little different method or a little different way than you and I do sometimes because we're just so immersed in it. And he gives a point of view that is based on his experience with the Emma Filipov case and the other cases that he works on. So he's able to give a a unique perspective uh, to us. That's right. And uh, the Emma Filipov case has had some interesting updates lately. And so we get into that a little bit. And a lot of people will kind of uh, say that Emma's disappearance is a little bit similar to Maura's. And there are some similarities, I would say. It's definitely not uh, not identical or as cl- even close as some- something like Brianna Maitland's disappearance. But you can definitely learn something maybe from what is going on in Emma's case and apply it to Maura's or vice versa. Yeah, it's interesting to get into the mind space that all of these young ladies had. Uh, Emma, Maura, Brianna, and even even though each one of their circumstances is much different uh, surrounding their disappearance, they're coming from a similar age. They're coming from a, a, a similar sort of point of, of, of life. Okay, so before we play the interview with Jordan, we just need to tell you about Stitcher Premium. So check out StitcherPremium.com because we're doing something really interesting with the early episodes of Missing Maura Murray. We have this wealth of episodes of information. Some of it is accurate. Some of it we corrected later on. But we have the opportunity to go back and 
do a sort of creator commentary, much like you'd see a director commentary in a film. This is a creator commentary. So we have the episode, the old episode playing, and then you and I chime in with what we feel today and maybe some corrections on certain facts or developments of the case. So if you really follow this case, these creator commentaries, A, they're very therapeutic for you and I. We get to really cringe our way through some of these episodes, but we, we can go back and actually deliver information that has been updated or corrected. That's right. And uh, it helps us, too, because I think we're kind of embarrassed by some of the things in some of the early episodes. And they actually will come down off of the public feed when the new creator commentary versions go up, when they're ready. So the first 10 we delivered and the first 10 episodes came offline, off the Apple Podcasts feed. So if you do Stitcher Premium, you only get that show? No, you get all of Missing Maura Murray commercial-free, and you get these creator commentaries. We've we've got 10 so far that are up there. And they're going to be coming in batches of 10 monthly. Every month, yeah. And we've got 11 through 20 coming very soon. But no, Lance. You get Empty Frames as well, season 2 and 3. I heard of that. That's another podcast that we do. It's about art crime, and the first season was about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist in Boston in 1990. And the third season will probably be about that as well, but we have season two, which I've affectionately titled a bridge season, even though it's turned into its own thing. It's really a unique thing about art heists and significant moments in art history. I think it's really interesting, and I think the subgenre inside true crime of art crime is sort of really compelling. We didn't realize how compelling it was until we started doing the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist uh, case, and we got deep into that, and then it started to sort of unfurl before us. We talked to people like Turbo Paul Hendry, who introduced us to this concept of Dr. No and how it really exists. People who, you know, we always say swirling their brandy in some remote castle location and looking at their stolen art on the wall. And everyone's like, oh, Dr. No doesn't exist. But he, he comes on to tell us that Dr. No does exist. And you also get the back catalog of Crawl Space, our other podcast, Lance. Do we ever stop talking? No, apparently not. I love my own voice. (laughs) But you also get all of Stitcher Premium's comedy albums. They have a ton. And True Crime Garage has a show called Off the Record that's very popular. So you get all of that? Yeah. Oh, and this must be like $30 a month. It's actually $4.99 a month. Stop it. Just use code MMM and you'll get a free month. And then you can just listen endlessly. So it's like the HBO of podcasts. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't compare it uh, apples to apples, but, uh, you know, something like that. Okay, so uh, we also want to talk real quick about an email that we got from a friend of ours named Bob, who uh, is a local in the, in, in the area, the immediate area of where Mora went missing. In Haverhill, New Hampshire, Haverhill, Woodsville area. Yeah, and uh, he's emailed us before, and we've uh, talked to him, I, I guess, through the podcast um, before, and he sent us a video because we were talking about the wild Amanusik, and we kind of uh, nicknamed it the mild Amanusik because we hadn't really ever seen it raging. We've only really seen videos on YouTube of it flowing heavily. Especially in the spring when there's the thaw and all the snow's melted and the ground is thawed out and then the river starts to flow a little bit heavier. But yeah, we have made the joke that it's more like the mild Amanusik because we've gone up there and as you're driving on Route 112, it's uh, on your whatever, your left or your right, depending on which direction, but it's right there next to the road and it's always been dry. 
it's always been a very small amount of water there. Yeah, it's in the summer. I guess it's usually uh, usually dry. But I guess in December, early December, mid December, Bob said he just took this video when he sent it to us, and there was some water, and it was moving pretty quick. Yeah, it looked like it was the wild Ammanusik. It looked like it was living up to its name. So it looks like in certain areas, it does have a much heavier current. So thanks, Bob, for sending that video in and giving us a little more perspective on the wild Ammanusik. And before we throw it to the interview, just wanted to read a few comments about the past couple episodes we did. We had FBI profiler Jim Clemente on, and of course he does uh, many podcasts, Best Case, Worst Case. He uh, is, is just a powerhouse in the crime media arena. And he's a legitimate FBI profiler, former FBI profiler. And he came on and gave a really unique perspective of the psychological autopsy, first of all, of Mora before she went missing, and then the circumstances of her disappearance itself. And uh, he brought to light some things that, I mean, maybe we considered, but we needed someone like him to say out loud. Yeah. And so he ended up kind of suggesting that it could potentially be a local who abducted her or someone who was familiar with the area in some way. So we took to YouTube and found some comments here. And we got a lot of feedback on this episode because of what he said. We intentionally went into this episode not giving him that much information because we wanted an unbiased look at at the disappearance and her personality beforehand. So Darcy here says, totally agree. Great info. Makes a lot of sense. Someday the answer will come. And we have someone here who wrote, it seems like a lost opportunity. He was willing to spend more time on it, but Tim and Lance hadn't given him enough information. A thorough written summary might help. Uh, I agree with that. He, we intentionally didn't give him a, a ton of information so that he would have an unhindered view of the case. But he also was very uh, limited on his time. He is a consultant on Criminal Minds and the TV show. So he was, we're pretty sure he was in his car in the parking lot of the studio. He had to go in for a writer's meeting. So we were on a very limited time frame. We will have him back on, though. Craig says there are a lot of fine details that you didn't go into with Clemente, and bear in mind I'm not complaining, but I'm very interested in what he'd make of them, and I hope to hear his reaction to them at some point in the future. Thanks, Craig. I agree. And uh, we definitely tried our best to give the details in in kind of a a, a speedy fashion, I guess. We didn't have enough time to go into full detail on everything, but we did our best. And then someone whose name is ICU, that's cute, says, this guy is fascinating. Bring him back 100 times. I don't know if we're going to get him 100 times, but maybe two or three more times. Kim says, I'm leaning towards something happening slash foul play near the scene of the accident. Someone out there knows something. Moore's family deserves the truth. They need closure. Please come forward if you have any information. And let's reinforce that, Lance. Please go to the New Hampshire State Police if you have any credible information on Mora's disappearance. If you don't feel comfortable going to the New Hampshire State Police, feel free to go to the Murray family on Facebook, on Twitter. You can send something to us at missingmoramurray at gmail.com, and we will make sure the appropriate people see that message. Or we have a P.O. box now. If you want to send us physical mail, you know you can trust us with this. You can send that to 22 Front Street, F-R-O-N-T, 22 Front Street, P.O. Box 230 in Worcester, Massachusetts. 
And our last episode that we did, Lance, was with Marissa Jones of the Vanished podcast. And everyone loves Marissa. We had a million comments, maybe not quite a million, but it felt like it. A a million comments on YouTube and on all our social media platforms just saying, love this show, love this woman. And uh, here's one from Dolph Fan. Love both of these shows. Listen all the time. We got a comment here on YouTube from Joey Rizzo. Says, man, what happened to her and what happened to the Vermont teen? He's talking about Mora and he's talking about Brianna. This is scary AF. Hope they get justice for the families and please people awareness for all teens. I think that's an important thing to note there that uh, someone who's commenting on YouTube is promoting awareness for all teens. I mean, this is something that could happen to anybody at any time and you just don't expect it and you're not prepared for it. You just have to be aware. Yep. Aware AF. From Shane, you can really tell how much she feels from the cases she has studied slash researched slash investigated. You can hear it in her voice and almost feel the impact that it has had. I think that's such a great point from Shane uh, because it, it, she really does wear it all on her sleeve, doesn't she? And I think you have to do that, right? If, if you're going to be genuine in this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Comment here from Lou. I know you guys are worn out. You look really beat up. But you have to dig deeper and ruffle more feathers in order to solve this case. Stop being nice and start kicking ass and taking names. I appreciate the advice and I and I appreciate where you're going with that. I don't really think I look beat up, but I mean, I <laughs> try to, I try to clean up nice. I guess you have a dislocated elbow. Maybe he was referencing that, or was it? <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe he's referencing my crow's feet. I don't know, <laughs> but uh, crow's feet. I appreciate the sentiment. If he has any ideas, uh, please email us at missingmoremurray at gmail dot com. We're always open to listening to new ideas on how to uh, quote ruffle feathers or. Do something, you know, responsibly, but get the job done. Yeah, I mean, in order to kick ass and take names, I, I, I am all about that. Sometimes Lancey Grace comes out, but, you know, you don't want to disrupt a case. And like you said, you want to be responsible about it. But thanks for the advice. And, yeah, if you have any other pieces of advice like that, send them our way. And don't forget about our docuseries. We have the four episodes that are up on Amazon Prime Video, Finding More Murray. We're giving a percentage of all of the download fees to the Find More GoFundMe account. And we will have more episodes coming soon. Everything's been trending really well with that. But anyone who hasn't watched that, give it a watch. It's really fascinating, and we put a lot of hard work into it. Okay, so here is the episode with Jordan Bonaparte. Check out his podcast, The Nighttime Podcast, and follow us on Twitter at Maura Murray Doc. We're also on Instagram and Facebook at Missing Maura Murray. How's it going, Jordan Bonaparte? It's been a long time, uh, no talk. Yeah, it's been a bit. I had a kid since we last talked, and congratulations, pretty much occupied all my time. Yeah, well, I think you did as well. So, congrats to you as well. Yeah, you, got, you guys had kids. That's like a marvel of modern science. Not together, but yeah. Wow! Wow! Well, your wives must be really happy. Yeah, it's <laughs> almost like she. Uh, I was actually just listening to one of your episodes, and I think my wife is about as happy as your girlfriend was when she got that new bra. Oh my god, she was so happy. They are ecstatic when we give them uh, a new bra or or a, any other kind of sponsor gift. Yeah, the Madison Reed. They just went the hair color is like not that they need it, of course. But hair. I mean, they don't need the boost. But my girlfriend does jumping jacks whenever we give her a, a gift from the one okay. of the lovely sponsors. One of the wonderful sponsors. Yeah. Nice shirt. I actually was just wearing that last night. Yeah, this is a coincidence. (laughs) Sure it is. 
It's in frame, right? You can see that? Yeah, yeah. But you're wearing it during the day. How does that work? That's confusing. I don't know, man. It's always nighttime here. When you have a one-year-old baby that's up all night, I don't know. I have to look outside and take a guess what time, time of day it is. Time's just, time's just a thing. Is he up all night? Yeah. You, you were telling me some, uh, uh, some amazing it, stories earlier. It's hit or, Yeah, well, it started off really good. Then it kind of got bad. Then it got good. It's hit or miss. But I find it ironic. My son was born on the 21st of December, which is the shortest day of the year. But it was actually like the longest night of my life. <laughs> nice you which kind of makes sense in that one yeah <laughs> that's a good one yeah, it, i knew that would go over good <laughs> yeah uh well congratulations that uh that's uh it's great uh have a, you have a yeah. growing family so what, what's new yeah. with uh with nighttime podcast well i think the biggest news probably i have is that my show now is partnered up with this company called chorus which is a major canadian the, I guess, news organization. They own like the History Channel and a whole bunch of radio stations. And so what they've done is they, they're taking all my back episodes of the show, re-editing them and airing them on um, on all the radio stations they own across Canada. So it's in Canada anyway. They say it's the first time a, a, like an a independent podcast has been syndicated nationally. So it's uh, that's been pretty cool. That's awesome. Congratulations. You must be yeah. just raking in the accolades and the mad cash. Oh. It's just been nuts, yeah. It's been nuts. It's like when Seinfeld um, went when went into syndication. I mean, those guys yeah. don't even have to work anymore. Yeah, it's the exact same thing. I'm actually thinking about taking down. Like you may see a above me in uh, like a 1970s era tile ceiling. I was actually thinking about getting some drywall installed. What's the deal with these ceiling tiles? <laughs> oh my! I thought Jerry Seinfeld was here. <laughs> I like the retro look there with with your ceiling yeah. tiles. Yeah. But it's a, it's kind of a statement to the type of money I'm making uh, from the podcast. Yeah, inst- <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. So yeah. it sounds like you're very very busy. Oh, it never stops. Between my real job and the podcast and kids and all the other things I try to do, like Netflix and video games, it's just uh, I don't have a lot of time. You mean develop shows for Netflix and develop video games? Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you're so, like a Swiss Army knife. So I noticed yeah. uh, there was some new stuff going on in uh, Emma Filipov's case. Yeah, that's been um, probably the, the biggest news in the case uh, Emma, since shortly after Emma's disappearance. Basically, you, you guys know the story, but Emma was last seen standing shoeless and disoriented on November 28th, 2012, uh, downtown Victoria, British Columbia, by police officers who were responding to a phone call for a woman in distress. This was, uh, the times are a bit rough, but it was, I guess, around 9.30, 9.40-ish that the police finished speaking to her after about 45 minutes and let her just walk off into the night, um, assumedly never to be seen again. So again, after Emma walked away from the police uh, who responded to that phone call, she there was never a confirmed sighting. Um, since then, her a, a prepaid credit card she had purchased had been found not too far from where she was last seen and basically a, a community uh, uh, neighboring Victoria. So there was kind of an indication she may have went off in that direction and dropped the prepaid credit card along the way. It was actually a semi-homeless person was trying to use it at a gas station, I think about a week or two after her disappearance. And that's how they found out where he found it and whatnot. He's, he claimed he just found the credit card on the ground. But anyway, what has come up since is um, a guy has come forward and claims that on the night of Emma's disappearance, he picked up 
a hitchhiker while he was on his way to work. I think it was two or three in the morning. He was traveling and saw a woman in distress, shoeless. Um, It looked like she was just screaming to herself in the middle of the street uh, on basically a lonely road. And as he approached her, she kind of jumped off the street uh, up onto the sidewalk. And he pulled over and asked her, you know, is everything all right? Do you need help? And she told him, Again, it's it's raining at this point. She's soaking wet, no shoes on. It's the end of November, so it's not a warm night. And she had told him, um, uh, it's just my dad. And he kind of, the, the guy in the car kind of thought that was odd. And he's, you know, because there's nobody else in sight. What would a father do that would lead his daughter to be in the middle of the nowhere, soaked, screaming alone on the street? So he offered to give her a ride. And she said she was uh, on her way to see a friend, and he offered to drive her there. Uh, coincidentally, where he ended up dropping her off was um, very close to where that credit card was found. So basically, this new witness that came forward really adds credence to the theory that Emma left Victoria alone and that she was heading in this direction and dropped her credit card along the way. Because uh, some of the earlier theories involved her being abducted within Victoria and not even leaving the town. But the witness, although the information he gave doesn't really point the search in any major direction, it just indicates that she did get out of the city and she was heading in a specific direction. Sadly, she didn't say which friend she was going to see. So it's it's still a dead end, but it definitely reinvigorated the search and it gave uh, Emma's mother, Shelley, a tremendous amount of hope because as the witness described his encounter with the girl that he believes was Emma, uh, Emma's mother, Shelley, firmly believes it was her. When did this new lead come in? Well, it the guy who, who he's remained anonymous. Um, he contacted Emma's mother, Shelley, shortly after the fourth anniversary, so about a year ago. He grappled with whether or not he wanted to come forward. I think he had some concerns that people may invade his privacy and investigate him and try to blame him. He was also unsure if it actually was Emma. Right. I think what ended up, what end, I won't speak for him, but I think what ended up happening was he heard about the story of, of Emma's disappearance. And the more he learned, the more he realized this was probably the girl and I should come forward. Um, a few people close to him, I don't know if it was family or friends, he, he confided with the, into that, to them first saying, you know, I think I may have been the last one to see this girl. And I think at first they tried to talk him out of it being like, you know, don't, don't even go there. Don't come forward. But he, um, his, uh, I guess uh, his thinking about it, uh, he decided to do so. And I believe Emma's mother, Shelley, I think I can speak to her for her and say she's very grateful he did share the information. Do you know if he went to the police at all with it before he went to Shelley? Or was it Shelley and then he went to the police? My understanding, it was the police and then Shelley. Gotcha. And and that's a, a big pain point with Shelley is she uh, firmly believes that the police aren't actively investigating Emma's disappearance and have continuously dropped the ball from the beginning. In fact, one of the reasons, um, this is something that em, uh, that Shelley discussed on a recent episode I did. When Emma first disappeared, again, the police were the, up until this new witness, the police were the last people to speak to her for about 45 minutes. Um, they let her go thinking she was going to be okay. She was never seen again. Um, when the missing persons report was filed and the police first released the information on Emma's last known whereabouts, that um, 
that report that the police released said she was last seen on the completely other side of town than where they spoke to her. And it also said she was last seen with a group of friends. So people kind of were left with the idea that this is a young girl who was out, you know, partying with friends and disappeared. So that was kind of how the search started and how the word spread around Victoria that this girl out with her friends was missing. Had people had known that a girl in serious mental health uh, in a serious mental health crisis shoeless and disoriented you know speaking to police was was her last known whereabouts this witness may have more quickly put together that this was the same person just when if if you hear someone say you know this this young woman was last seen out with her friends that puts a different picture in your mind than they were last seen shoeless outside of a hotel downtown victoria you know, completely confused. It's just a different kind of vibe. Yeah, absolutely. But this is a pretty big lead, though. You said it's kind of a dead end, but it still puts the uh, the last sighting further down the line and, and potentially changes some, some search areas. So uh, what has happened as far as new searches? Yeah, well, that that's definitely is what has come of this new lead. It's It's added a lot more fuel to the fire that Emma may have gone in this direction. So what has happened was uh, Emma's mother, Shelley, and advocates that uh, that work with her and volunteers that work with her have created a GoFundMe. Um, this is all was done about a month ago. They gathered enough money to, actually very similar to what you all have done, through the GoFundMe, they gathered enough money to hire um, Kim Cooper, who's a Canadian cadaver dog searcher, People who listen to a lot of true crime podcasts may recognize her name because she was featured prominently in the first season of Someone Knows Something, a CBC production. Um, anyway, they uh, Shelley and her team hired Kim Cooper, and they have kind of a plan of a, a few areas that they've been searching for Emma. They completed the first search, um, and the results were nil. They, as far as I know, found no sign or trace of Emma. But really, I think... The value in his lead and the value of this new search is in the currency of hope for Shelley. It's been years since there's been any new information or lead. Now they have a direction she was heading and they have places to search and, and it's all happening. And I think you probably encounter a bit of this in, in, in your work where the families of missing people, they, they just seem to want to have the next step to take in the search for their missing loved one. And when all those steps are kind of taken and you're left with nowhere to go, I think that's when you just kind of sink down into your head and start thinking about the worst. I think for Shelly, this is, this gives her a whole bunch of new directions to look and a whole bunch more, you know, a whole bunch more to do before the thought of giving up would ever come to mind. How far was it between where, where Emma was last seen by the police officially and where she was picked up and then from where she was picked up to her destination. Yeah. I'm, I don't know exactly, but the, the area where the credit card was found is a small town called Callwood. Uh, we believe Emma was walking towards Callwood, which it's, it's for you or I, this would be a very long walk. I think it was about a three hour walk um, for, for her to make it there. But Emma was known to basically like walk all night. So this wouldn't have been a big deal for her. Um, so where she was where she was last seen to where her credit card was found was roughly a three hour walk. He dropped her off, I think about about a twenty five or about a twenty minute walk from where the credit card was found. So we're not talking about for you or I these are maybe big distances, but for Emma this wouldn't have been anything out of the ordinary for her to walk an hour or two at night walking barefoot in the rain in November. 
that's maybe a different story. Right. So it was about a 20 minute drive uh, when he picked her up to where he dropped her off. Is that what you just said? Oh, sorry. Um, where he picked her up to drop her off was only about a 10 minute drive. But where she was dropped off to where her credit card found was about a 20 minute walk. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So so my next question then would be this gentleman had this young woman in his vehicle for 10 minutes. So you feel relatively certain that his description is pretty spot on because it wasn't like a passing by uh, sighting. It was he spent time and probably had a conversation with her. Absolutely. Yeah. Gotcha. It, 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 if everything he says is 100% true and accurate, again, this is he's talking about memory of something that happened about five years ago. But if, if it's all accurate, it everything really checks out as far as, you know, how often in November, in the middle of the night, are you going to see someone walking, holding their shoes, long brown hair, an attractive young woman that, you know, talking as if they're maybe on drugs, maybe undergoing a mental health crisis. So that yeah. alone is checks out. And even like he describes when she when she got out of um, out of his car when he eventually dropped her off because what was happening is he was on the way to his a new job and it was like his first day so he didn't he couldn't go out of his way to take her to where he wanted to go he left her off let her off like in front of the gas station and he described her getting out of the car as like this she almost like slid out of the seat onto the ground as if her feet as if she was kind of trying to brace landing on the ground because maybe her feet were sore from walking from Victoria to the middle of nowhere, little things like that. And just really check out. But what Shelly Emma's mother described to me was um, one thing he, he, he told her was when Emma or the, the, the woman in distress was in the car with him, the way she took her long hair, like out of her hood and kind of dropped it down in front of her chest. um, Shelly said the description was to the T the way Emma would do that or had often done that. So uh, Shelly told me there's no doubt in her mind this was her. Yeah, I would say the the shoeless detail is uh, pretty much the giveaway there. Yeah, Yeah. and this is just a really fascinating lead, and uh, I I don't want to get so caught up in it, but it is a really fascinating lead, and you've done a great job in covering the case. With, With the publicity that you've created, how much publicity do you think should be put towards this lead in case it wasn't Emma and some other young woman can come forward and say that was me not not Emma Filipov well you know uh, my thought is these cases of, of missing people especially when you're talking four or five years ago for people looking for them their families their loved ones their advocates it's just important to keep the case in the light and in the news and keep an keep eyes on it so I think any lead that is credible is newsworthy, if only for the advantage of telling a whole bunch of Canadians and Americans about Emma Filipoff again, having her photograph on newspapers in Victoria. You know, I, I think there's value there. So even if if it doesn't lead anywhere, it's I'm sure new people learned about Emma and they went on to listen to podcasts and watch documentaries and maybe donate money to causes or get involved in kind of the plight of the missing person family members that are searching for them issue which is a huge issue here in Canada but um I don't I don't know if this is going to be the lead that that brings Emma home or or finds out what happened to her but it's definitely more than anything that's come up you know since the first weeks of the search absolutely do we know if she had any friends nearby where she was going or anything 
Sadly, no, there's nobody has been located in that area that knew her or that she was close with. Um, Emma's mother and her advocates have poured through the journals Emma left behind looking for any mention of this town or people from this town. And there's nothing. Okay. But it, but, but again, Emma's behavior leading up to her disappearance and especially so the night of her disappearance was so disoriented, disorganized, confused that who knows? So you're saying she might not have really been going to see a friend. It, it's, it's, it could be, it could have been anything. What direction was that in? When you look at where her credit card was found and what's around there, you're looking at on a on a Google Maps, you're looking at a lot of forest and dense woods, lakes, rivers, you know, uh, walking trails, hiking trails, these sorts of places. Places Emma would have been comfortable. Right. So uh, I guess my point in asking were were there friends nearby? Honest, uh, you know, had to do with. You know, at least there's been no no one else pulled into this. Like, there's no collateral damage. Some some random person who uh, didn't see Emma that night hasn't been smeared because of this or anything like that. No, fortunately, no. There's uh, there's there's this isn't this lead hasn't led to any one person's doorstep. Okay, so speaking of uh, collateral damage and all that, um, have you been following the uh, Maura Murray case updates? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, especially lately there's been it seems like it's been a busy couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah, on all fronts there. It's been a busy couple of weeks. Where do you lie on this because there was well let me be more specific. There there's been chatter about cadaver dogs having a positive reaction to an area that's undisclosed but has been of interest in the past and there have been people who have come out and started to disseminate the information. Where do you lie on that? Where, where's, where's, what's your feelings uh, on that? I don't feel good about it at all. I feel like at this point, what's the benefit of releasing that information? If, if you're, if you're only going to be releasing, vague, it seems self-serving to be like, I have this information. It's probably, you know, something important, but that's all I can say. Talk to me online about it. You know, it just seems like um, at this point, the if 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 somebody thinks they have some good information and maybe can you know solve this i think they need to just run with it and let us know when they figure it out why why create a distraction by releasing this information in such a way it's it's a different story with again contrasting this with emma's case this is a a specific direction emma was going an area she was last seen if this witness came forward and said said what they said and then Shelly released you know I heard from a guy he took Emma in a direction and dropped her off I can't say what direction but you know we're hot on her tail that's that's it's pointless and it just seems like it's just going to create noise there was an article written for Bustle called uh, The Innocent Man Making a Murderer and the Real Problem with Our True Crime Obsession and it was written by Jordan Loff and it states what you just summed up which is where is the, the this 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 obsession with true crime and where is the line before it becomes just dangerous yeah dangerous and pointless um i think all of us in in the true crime space of course there's some entertainment to it and that's probably what draws a lot of us deep into these stories but at the same time 
our interest in these stories can actually do good work. And we've seen countless cases where leads have come out of it or people have come forward that wouldn't have before had it not been for interest in a case. And, you know, we don't need to name all the different examples because there's been quite a few recently. But it just seems like in this particular case with the the information and the with the potential cadaver dog findings or whatnot, it's almost like um, everyone has probably seen that Simpsons episode where there's like Gabo, this upcoming product and all their ads are just, you know, Gabo is coming. That's, that's it. This almost feels like that. It's, it's, there's no real information. It's just, you know, look in our direction. We got something coming. You guys got to bug us about it. Cause we want to talk, but we're not going to tell you. Right. Uh, I think, I think it's, it's, I think that's harmful. It's only going to give people the wrong idea and eventually l- let them down. And when some good lead comes up down the road, maybe people will be less interested, less interested. The, the boy who cried wolf, we'll call it the armchair detective who cried wolf. Yeah, the armchair detective that cried Gabo. I like that. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we've gotten a lot of messages over the past few weeks about this, and uh, Julie Murray responded on um, yeah. Facebook uh, from you know an official family standpoint. Uh, and I, what I was telling people was that, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting my hopes up. I'm not, uh, thinking anything different, doing anything different until I see a police press conference about this. So that's our official statement, I think on this. Not to say that we weren't sweating when we were combing our way through this article, reading this article, uh, on bustle sweating because, we knew that there was a mention of Maura Murray and it was just looking for our names in the podcast to see what we did wrong. And luckily we were not mentioned in this article. And Tim and I had a conversation about how, how that was a good thing. And maybe we're doing the right thing because we're not mentioned in an article that shows how reckless this can be. So mm-hmm. either the person didn't know about it or they looked at it and said, okay, they're really not doing what I'm writing about. Yeah. The author said, seemed to wear the case uh, to the point where she probably knew of the podcast. So hopefully well, didn't she, didn't she refer to the podcast or he or she refer to the podcast as the disappearance of Maura Murray or, or were they talking about the TV show? I think they were, she was talking about the TV show. Yeah, that was a TV show. Okay. I thought they just got your name wrong. Um, but I, I think in your case, you have the human shield and James Renner. So no matter what you guys do, if people are going to talk about negative things happening in the Maura Murray case, you guys got to be pretty nasty before they say, Tim and Lance, blah, blah, blah. Jordan, you, you say that as if we planned this from the beginning. Because <laughs> they they threw him uh, they threw him under the bus a bit, and I I don't know I have no problem with James Renner I get I get who he is and the way he does things, and I I take it for what it's worth when he says something. But you know, there's people can hate him all they want, but he's done a lot to bring that case the attention it has. And you know, although he's done some horrible things, and I'm sure people who are uh, involved in that disappearance would like to probably attack him in horrible ways. They should probably also thank him when they're done beating on him. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you're right. There, there's no doubt he's, he helped raise attention. And I think we've said many times we wouldn't have ever started this podcast if it weren't for his blog. So uh, we owe him that for sure. Um, but the, the collateral damage is a, is a term you can use associated with some of his findings that, you know, no, no offense to him, but they don't, they're, they probably shouldn't have been out there in the first place, or they're talking about people who don't necessarily have things to do with Mora's disappearance. And we're definitely guilty of this to some extent, too. 
So I don't want it to seem like I'm singling him out. Um, not only us, but other true crime podcasters are guilty of this too. You almost can't do it without having some negative impact. Yeah, name it. He names names, and it's it's basically like the tabloidy version of of what you guys are doing. It's like the National Enquirer of true crime. Do you ever get anything? I know the when we spoke in the past, we asked you the same question, and I'm wondering if it's changed a little bit. Do you ever get anything like this? Uh, any 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 people reaching out about Emma, saying that they've they've looked into it and they're focusing or hyper focusing on this one detail, and you have to pay attention to it. Yeah, I, you know what, I'm good at kind of. I have a good sense when I'm reading something, if if somebody's information is credible or or if it's a bit out there. And I find it's it's pretty obvious. So a lot of things that I'll I'll hear will be either like the kind of the common emails will be, you know, I, I love the podcast and, you know, I, I feel for Emma's family and I wish there was something I could do to help. You know, there's that type of email. Then there's the, you know, I had a dream or I know a psychic or there's some blog written by a psychic and this is what they said. You know, can you give me Emma's mother's phone number? You know, these sorts of things. As far as the leads, it's or, or as far as the pointing fingers, the what I get the most emails from about, hands down by a long shot, is my interview with Julian, uh, who is a one-time suspect in Emma's case. Um, that interview, a, a lot of people will listen to it, and they're kind of reading between the lines and listening to the intricacies of what he's saying and trying to catch him in a a lie or find a double meaning to what he's saying to you know assume he's you know trying to hide something and i often will respond to those just to say the one hour episode of julian is a portion of a three hour long conversation so to read into it in that way is completely inappropriate um, but I, I get a lot of that and those ones I will respond to always just because p- people, I don't, I don't know. Uh, some people may listen to my podcast and think it's just, that's just the way my conversation went and I released it, but it's heavily edited to make it easy to listen to, especially in the case of Julian. Well, yeah, you really don't want people out there who think Julian is Emma's murderer and he gave it out in like in between the lines, uh, during your interview you know that that that's a bit much, but he, he is a great example of collateral damage in in media cases covering uh, missing persons. He's the textbook perfect example. And when I was reading that article that you're referring to, my my thought was this author uh, or this journalist or writer or whatever should have gotten in touch with Julian because it's he's the perfect example of somebody who in some ways his own doing but more so just in circ- out of circumstance he looked like he may have had something to do with it a major television documentary by CBC called Finding Emma really pointed a finger at him and kind of unfairly so in my opinion but basically what it led to is people all over Canada and the states who follow Emma's disappearance were going through you know there was a community set up that was going through um Julian's photos and his Facebook and trying to find out where he worked and where was, you know, just basically doing a really aggressive investigation in him. And I think Julian would probably tell you it. I don't know if it ruined his life, but the last five years of his life have been really rough. And it basically led to him leaving his job, leaving social media altogether, moving to an undisclosed location in the middle of nowhere where he's happily outside of the public eye. Um, so not only did Julian lose someone very 
who he cared a great deal about in Emma. He also a lot, lost a lot of his privacy. Um, he's a, a pretty simple guy into canoeing and folk music. To then be thrust onto the spotlight of Reddit and web sleuths and all these web pages where people are, you know, accusing you these, you know, killing somebody that you're mourning. That's that's rough. Thank you. Now we know where to look for him. He's canoeing probably somewhere very rural. Um, but <sighs> but my question is, so I, I I understand the collateral damage that he went through, and I think that's awful, and it's very extreme. And he is the greatest mm-hmm. example that I can think of, maybe. Um, but what would have happened to Emma's case? If CBC didn't produce that documentary and he wasn't smiling and that didn't have the effect on the people out there that it did. Yeah, that's a good point is every kind of case needs a a villain and they need theories. So when when the Finding Emma documentary came out, I'm sure the producers of that documentary, they they want to tell the story of what happened. But then they also want to kind of pitch these different theories to get people talking and get people more interested Julian happened to be one of those theories. I get why you could consider him a suspect, but I feel like he was maybe included in the way he was purely as a storytelling plot device, which um, was very harmful for him. And it happens in so many cases. But they weren't telling him to smile during the during that interview. Like he was he was smirking during the interview, probably because he was nervous, not because he murdered. Emma. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and exactly. And so they did like little, you know, they they blew it up. They they did these little push-ins on him, on him smiling, and and everyone who watched it is like, oh my god, that guy killed Emma, and and it had an effect on the case. I'm sure a positive effect for publicity. So I guess my question is. Like this balance is so inexact, but it's a balance between some person's life there, which you would consider collateral damage in a missing person's case versus raising publicity for this missing person's case. And you enter sort of another victim into the fold. Yeah, I think that balance is up for the legal system to find because there's laws for libel and slander. And that's really what police has said. If somebody is going to create a documentary or a podcast or whatever and and point you in a negative light or paint you in a negative light you know they just have to be careful with what they're doing because the law can come back and bite you i think it's only a matter of time before we see a true crime podcast uh put to the test legally yeah i 100 percent agree with you right there and we we all know that it is of no concern to a network who's producing a show to look at that footage of, uh, you know, of Julian and say like, Oh, he's smirking. And then the editor pushes in, you know, or the camera guy pushes in because they know that they need uh, a hook for people to view. And they're not even thinking collateral damage. They're, they're thinking a good show. So yeah, the only thing that we can do as a community is, is take that and try to use it in a positive direction. And if you're able to communicate with someone like Julian and get him on and have him tell his side of the story so that he can get that out there and then go back to his simple life, then then that's as much of a positive thing that you can do based on Mm -hmm. the collateral damage that happened. But we also have to, but as a community, I think we also have to think critically, right? Uh, Like Julian isn't going on the CBC documentary and, and uh, smiling because he, you know, and he also killed Emma, and then he's coming on your podcast and giving hints to the the people listening. Like that, 
that's not what's happening. Right. You're saying the critical thinking part is if he did kill her, why is he putting himself out there? Why is he why is he coming that close to getting caught? The, you know, he's not Kaiser Soze. You know what I mean? He's yeah. just he's if, if this did happen, he's not doing those things. He's not coming out. Yeah, not everything is is hunt a killer. You know, yeah. I think yeah. I think sometimes, and I we're definitely victim of it too, uh, especially in these early episodes of Missing Maura Murray that we're kind of going back and and listening to now. But uh, we are sort of perpetuating this like, well, maybe everything is a clue thing, and here we are three and a half years later after those early episodes, and hardly any of it was a clue. Yeah, it's uh, when you start it. Like even then, like you haven't been doing the podcast that long, but a lot has changed even since then. I think if you were to start this case now, knowing what you know, learning what you learned about podcasting and journalism and investigation, I'm sure you would have started it a completely different way. Um, that's kind of the beauty of your show. We're kind of learning the case along with you. And you don't really earlier on, you guys didn't know what was important, what wasn't. So you had to do 90 episodes basically to get to where you are now. But yeah, it's um, I, I think we all just need it's about being responsible and not making someone else a victim when they don't when they don't need to be. You know, I, for I'm very careful about it. If I was ever going to name someone as a suspect in an episode of, of Nighttime or or even even insinuate someone could be a suspect, I would want to be really certain about it because I, I just for one, I wouldn't want to have to ever be tested. If, if I was, you know, if somebody came after me, which they could do, I don't know why they would, cause I'm as broke as a joke, but, um, yeah, I mean, no, we've I, all seen your ceiling. Yeah. We see those ceiling <laughs> tiles there, Jordan. Um, yeah. well on that topic, do you, what do you think of, uh, I don't know if you listened to the interview that we did maybe a few months ago with, uh, uh, these investigators, the parodies, um, and there was some, some social media, uh, Backlash dis- discussion, perhaps about like the, maybe these guys went a little too far in naming uh, suspects or, or things like that. What, what do you feel about that? I think it's it's a slippery slope, but I also think, and, and here's what I suspect is going to happen in podcasting. There's so many true crime podcasts. There's so many investigative podcasts, and now you start to see almost like. Um, you know, up and vanished, solved a case or whatever happened. I think now people who are new to podcasting are expecting to hear people like you or you or I solve these cases uh, and really kind of get new leads. So I think the new people who are coming in behind us are really being pushed to to speculate and sound sure of themselves. And like you hear of um, just as an, an example. I, I've heard a lot of talk about YouTubers being burnt out because they're making so many videos and they have to take a step back. I think the people who are just starting now that want to that wanna come into this, they may feel a lot of pressure to name names and try to solve a case when it just doesn't work like that. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know if that answers the question, but I just think, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I think it, you need to be responsible. So many of us don't have any journalistic or investigative backgrounds. We need to come to terms with that and just do what we can. For, for me, it's a lot different even than what you do, where I'm more just trying to tell the story, where you, you now are involved in the investigation to some extent. So you've crossed a line that I've never had to cross, and I don't know if I ever will, but... 
Come I on guess on it's just of, a yeah. come on on this side of the line, Jordan. It's it's uh, it's really fun over water, here. Water's great over here. Yeah, it's really I bet, warm. Yeah. Warm in the winter. I see what people say about you guys online. I'll let you do that. <laughs> and you still don't want to come over? <laughs> yeah, we have rafters. No, no ceiling tiles up here. Open, open concept. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. the people who you mentioned coming in behind true crime podcasts like ours, expecting to solve something and therefore naming names and being a little bit more accusatory. A, a small piece of advice is podcasters and people who are not law enforcement even journalists don't solve crimes they might have information which they then deliver to law enforcement and law enforcement solves crimes there has not ever been a case where a podcaster or a journalist has single-handedly gathered evidence and convicted somebody if you if you as an individual approach a property or another individual if you gather evidence on your own you've you've then just probably ruined an entire case for for any sort of prosecution because it's Absolutely. been improperly handled yeah mm-hmm. and, and i don't want to bust anyone's bubble who listens to the show or follows the community but you know we've often said a, a clue that that is uncovered on social media or something like that is not going to lead to the end of this case um but if you find something you find really interesting, you need to send that to the cold case unit because they are the only people who can resolve this case. Right. And that being said, we've we've been getting emails for a long time and we get people who are very focused on one thing and they'll send us a, an email and they'll say, look at this one thing. What do you think it is? I've been analyzing this this one thing and I don't want to get like specific, but we get a lot of these emails where it's look at this. I see this here in this in this image. And what do you think of this? And I don't want to discourage that at all because you just never know. And if someone has the time and the energy to do that, I think that can be a really positive thing. Just don't put that out there as something that is a, a definite clue. Well, as we said, actually, that that kind of thing is more valuable, I think, to the cold case unit than uh, just like a theory from from reading things and like, oh, you know, I think it was this person. Something tangible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least it's a different way of looking at something. You right. know, And I think that is what they value, because we've heard that they the cold case unit will speak with um, some people who have uh, thoughts or have analyzed things in a certain way that can be uh, helpful in looking at the case in a different light. And that leads me to a question for you, Jordan, about your involvement with law enforcement. How much involvement do you have, if any, with any of the cases, especially Emma's case? uh, With Emma's, absolutely none. I I believe there was a private investigator who was working for Shelley. I never communicated with them, but I think they had some interest in some things Julian said on my episode, um, not to consider him a suspect, but just to basically kind of double check what he had told this uh, investigator back, you know, shortly after she disappeared. But I've never had any, any involvement specifically with law enforcement in Emma's case and a few other episodes that I did, I've reached out to investigators saying like, you know, could we talk? Cause I want to, you know, help get the story out there. I've never been warmly received. The only, the furthest I've ever got was um, I had a um, like, kind of like a media liaison on my podcast speaking on behalf of the police, but not specific about the case, the case that I was covering. Um, so I, I, I basically have given up reaching out to law enforcement. And I think when they hear podcast or true crime podcasts, especially, I don't think they want anything to do with us, to be honest. 
I think that's true to some extent. Um, but we we do get emails from current law enforcement. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't sell yourself short there. I think I think there's probably some part of law enforcement that has people listening to your show. Oh, especially uh, when you do an an Emma episode. There's no question. You probably just haven't heard from them because they just didn't write you an email yet. But oh, yeah. I should I should rephrase that. I've I've heard off the record kind of thing. Like I've heard people write who are. I've had emails from people who are um, psychologists or doctors of, you know, that study schizophrenia or police. I've even heard from a police officer who had worked on her case a little bit, but it's always been, you know, I don't want to appear on your show. This is off the record, you know, that sort of thing. Never any good information, but I mean more so in terms of having an investigator actively working a file, willing to talk to me and get me involved in any way that that is I have never had that experience I've had a lot of police write to me you know about the show but never uh in a collaborative let's work together and get some information out there kind of way but I think th- times are changing and and that is what, what the cold case unit said to us and uh so uh, this kind of thing will be more common in years to come. Um, pot, the word podcast is not as foreign as it once was. I believe half of Americans listened to a podcast in 2018. That's a huge step forward since where it was a few years ago. That includes a lot of law enforcement, Jordan. They're, they're driving around in their cars. Yeah, they're all listening to the Joe Rogan experience. <laughs> <laughs> you now owe so, Joe Rogan money, by the way, because you said his name. Yeah. We owe money now too. Damn, sorry. Yeah, you you'll watch a documentary or listen to uh, your local radio show uh, or a, a show on your you know local talk radio. You'll hear investigators or police go on these places and and talk openly. I think there's just still a bit of a taboo around like independent podcaster. I think that's going to change. I, the word podcast is is bad. It's a bad word. I try not to even say it. And what I do now that my show's on the radio here, I introduce myself. If I'm talking to someone about my show, um, especially about appearing as a guest, I'll say, my name is Jordan. I have a radio show called nighttime. You can hear it on, you know, blank radio station in your town. It's also available on, as on a, as a podcast. But I think if, if, if I come forward and I say, I'm Jordan, I, I make a podcast and in my basement on my laptop when my kids are asleep, want to talk to me about you know this horrible thing people are a little bit like it's becoming more mainstream day every day there's a a couple of major network networks here in america that are doing uh tv shows where the main characters are podcasters so it's normalizing as a job it's getting there the new um halloween movie um that was a great myers that was a great moment in that movie where they they had the podcaster yeah (laughs) <laughs> we're doing a, we're, no we're doing a podcast. <laughs> but. Yeah, no, it, it's getting there, but it's still like our our opinion is is a bit biased because we run in this circle and all of our friends are know about podcasts. But if you just go into some office building in your town and you start t- telling people about podcasts, you'll get some real blank stares. Um, and I see it all the time in my life. People will say, "How's your blog going?" And I'll try to explain. <laughs> Yeah, you know yeah, what the difference gone. is, and then I, I'm just I, like, whatever. It's a blog. I watched your blog. I think it's kind of still a personal experience for a lot of people. They don't talk about the podcast they listen to with other people a lot of times. Mm. Yeah, I I disagree with those numbers. I don't believe half the people do. I think, um, yeah, I don't think it's anywhere close. But I don't know. 
in my life, I, I interact with a lot of people who aren't involved in true crime or podcasts, and so many of them don't know what a podcast is. I've had countless people, not countless, I've had probably five people say, I read your latest blog episode, and it was really good. And what they were doing was on my website, they were reading the episode summary, thinking like, this is what I spend all my time doing, writing summaries of cases. Right, writing one <laughs> or two paragraph summaries. Yeah, and putting a couple of links down there. <laughs> but people still enjoy them. Apparently, yeah. yeah. Click yeah, on the links. Click on the yeah, links. Find, the out links. What, yeah. find out what it really is. Yeah. Uh, my my burning question for you is: uh, Are we just bringing a nighttime T-shirt to CrimeCon 2019 again, or I'm gonna get? Oh, I'm not gonna be there. It's, so we're unless, bringing um, we're bringing a T-shirt again. Yeah, yeah, and I'll send you okay. a new one this time so you look fresh. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'd, I like the I'd old love school one because I I want that to go forever. I want that old school T-shirt to always to always be at the next CrimeCon. Yeah, uh, it would be nice. But yeah, I'd love to go, but not in the cards. I, I started podcasting because it's like the one thing I can do on my laptop in the middle of the night that's exciting. And that isn't a video game. Uh, I, I definitely uh, don't have the capacity to be masquerading around the world, shaking hands with people and yes, you, you know all do, these sorts of Jordan. things and and how about the true crime podcast festival in july in chicago a lot closer than new orleans to mm. you yeah and a couple friends are going there christy lee she's a good friend of mine in the with the canadian true crime podcast she's going to be there and uh are you guys going to be there for that yeah yeah and shout out to christy yeah yeah we're yeah. going to be there oh well definitely meet her because i i talk to her about you guys all the time um and yeah this is nina from already gone is organizing this event this event that's right i did i did a uh i guess i don't know if you'd call it an event or whatever in in toronto uh christy lee from the canadian true crime podcast myself nina from already gone and a few others did a live appearance so i, I love uh, nina's awesome i wish i could go i'd love to see chicago and i'd love to see her again but yeah. my uh why one-year-old baby is just hell on an airplane uh, well just how about uh how about it's Road daddy trip. daddy time yeah Daddy uh, oh, yeah. hops on a flight and uh, goes back the next day or two days later. Yeah, no, Mama has Mummy has different opinions on where I should be flying to talk about true crime with people on the internet to do your to do your blog. What are you only you only going in uh, hip deep on this podcast thing? I thought uh, I thought I thought you you have a radio show now. Oh yeah, next year I will. Once my once my kid's old enough to travel, you know, I was in uh, Boston with you guys. That was when my. Before my youngest was born, my oldest was like five then, so I could travel then. So I, in a, maybe four or five years, I'll go to Chicago. You not gallivanting around is honestly a direct slap in the face to your check mark on Twitter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Coll That's collateral a... damage for verified accounts, yeah. I'd say. One day you woke up and you had a check mark and you're like, eh. I could stay home. Business <laughs> as usual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think I was just lucky. They gave me that, and shortly after, they like I guess suspended the program because I my understanding is a lot of uh, accounts that were like doing like hate speech and all this stuff were like had the check mark, so they had to reevaluate who gets them and all this stuff. Um, so anyway, it makes me I guess it makes me look important to people who have Twitter accounts. So I'll take it. Right. So the next time you talk to somebody and you say, hey, I do this podcast and I want you to come on as a guest and they give you that blank look, just be like, no, no, look at my check mark." Yeah. And then I'll explain what Twitter is, what a podcast is, what the check mark symbolizes to some. <laughs> oh, that'll go great. I'm going to come to your house with my recorder. How about that? There you go. I'm from Twitter. <laughs> well, what's what's next for you guys? You did you the cadaver dog search 
happened. You've been searching all over the place there. What's what's coming next? You got the community's GoFundMe money, which is there for searching. Do you have any plans? So we've used that money to test soil. Uh, the GPR led us to the soil testing, which led us to getting up there and digging. Uh, we've been working with the cold case unit as well and the dogs, the, the cadaver dogs. So uh, the next step is to put that money towards something that will be an eventual bigger fundraiser for, say, a Moore Murray scholarship or maybe something that had to do with uh, an activity that she was passionate about, like hiking. Maybe maybe there could be a community effort that can go into cleaning up trails and raising money to go into the account, which can then be used, a portion of it can then be used towards investigating Mora's disappearance, but we can also work with our other organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, and work with investigators from that. There's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of community involvement going on in, on that end as well. So we just want to make the GoFundMe the most productive it can be, and if it's not going directly towards her investigation, a part of it can, but another part of it can go towards something that makes uh, something better in the community. That sounds awesome. We're talking about a road race uh, in the spring, uh, which would also be a fundraiser, but it would be kind of a, an event possibly on or near Mora's birthday in May and uh, something that we're uh, working on behind the scenes and we'll be talking about very soon. Yeah, and we're working on it with somebody who who saw the GoFundMe, was listening to the show, saw the GoFundMe, and had the idea because this person is a runner and thought that something that had to do with uh, a 5K or some sort of run combined with a fundraiser would be good in Maura's memory. And like Tim said, it's going to be on or around her birthday in May. And we have a location that's tentatively picked out. And uh, there's there's a, a tentative hashtag for uh, run a mile for Mora, which is pretty appropriate. But yeah, there will be an official announcement soon. That sounds awesome. What I will say about about your show is the the recent episode with Kurt Murray, hands down, was my favorite one. Uh, that was the episode where really my opinion about the the most stuff changed in listening to him. It's he shed so much light on Kathleen and just on on Fred and the family in general. I thought having him on was so good, and both to get a better picture of the family. The storytelling was great to hear about Mora's life, but it just kind of set the record straight on a lot of things. So I, I think that was a job well done. Well, thank you. And he's also very involved with the fundraiser that's going to be happening in May. So um, again, we'll we'll make a uh, announcement on that officially, but that, that probably is our favorite episode as well. 